1: Holy Father, we come now to your written living word, to this Bible that is thousands of years old and speaks to life today. It speaks to us because it comes from you and you have known every single one of us in every single situation we face commonly as humans and even personally as individuals you know us you have spoken to us you have written it down and you day by day give life to this word by your spirit and I thank you for that because I need it I need this word and I need him, your spirit we all do So while I give thanks, Lord, I also make a large request that you would stoop down low to be present here in this room with these few of your creatures. And you would speak to us this morning. I ask that of you, that you would take this word and that you would open it and that you would Speak it into each of our hearts. Lord, there, there are a bunch of us here this morning from a host of different places. And the message that we need is both a common message for all of humanity, but also tailored to each of our particular lives. Spirit of God, I ask you speak to each of us in ways that we can hear so that we understand. Call those who do not believe to believe this morning, I pray. Call those who do believe to believe more firmly, more deeply, more widely than they have. Call young and old, male and female. Call this people here to yourself, Spirit of God. Exalt the Son as is your job. He told us that you would come and that you would illumine Him to our minds and hearts. And so call us to Him. Exalt Him. Win a people for His honor. Father, I thank You that this is all possible because of what Christ has done. And so I ask you, commission the Spirit to do it this morning. It's possible. I ask you humbly, please do it. Give life to this living Word. Make it clear. Help us to understand it. Change us with it. Give power to my human words. Open our human hearts and our blind eyes and enable us to see and believe and be changed. For the glory of Christ. For the good of this people gathered here, Lord. Would you do that? In the name of Jesus, I pray it. Amen. As this is our last Sunday before Christmas, I'm I'm leaving our series in the book of Deuteronomy to address a text that is more directly tied to this holiday. But as I do that, what else can be said about Christmas? Don't we all already know the story of baby Jesus, away in the manger, no crying he makes? Who doesn't know that? Do Most have heard that to be sure. So, and so my prayer for this morning as I preach about Christmas from Luke chapter 2 is not that you will be informed about the details of the Christmas story. But as I just prayed and as I have been praying, my prayer is that you'll get the Christmas story. That something will come home to you in your heart that will change you. In our passage this morning, we'll see Mary and Joseph, who you know, Mary and Joseph, and they're going to hear Jesus tell them something that they should have already known from before and that they surely understand when he speaks it to them and they miss it. Linguistically they got it, intellectually they got it, but they missed it. And that's what I'm praying against for this morning. I I pray that God would give grace this morning so that you don't miss it. So that you hear and that you understand, and and you will hear it and, and you will understand it. But so that you'll more than that, that you'll get it. That there'll be something here that will happen and you'll understand it and that you'll see who this Jesus is. And what he means for you and in your one and only fleeting life. So I'm praying that maybe for the first time this morning you'll get it, or you'll get it again. Because it, it is not just a, a one and done sort of thing that it, it clicks and then permanently you know it all for the rest of your life. We leak. Goes in and it runs my it, it goes in and it runs out. We fall apart. We need to hear it. Take it in and be changed by it again and again and again. Once dramatically for the first time, but then constantly. And so this morning, may you get it. What God has to say to us in Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read Luke 2, verses 41 to 52, then I'll pass back through it to be sure that we understand it and then make a couple of observations. Luke 2, beginning in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But Then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Luke 2. These first two chapters, the whole first two chapters of Luke's gospel, contain most of the details of what we call the Christmas story. Not all of them, but most of the main details are in there. And our passage this morning concludes this, this introduction to Jesus section of the book of Luke with Jesus' self-introduction. We have here his first words in the gospel. And it's, this section is designed to both conclude the introduction section and to kind of challenge us and ask us, did you get it? Verses 41 and 42 set the stage. Mary and Joseph, it says, customarily went up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, just last week, we were in the book of Deuteronomy, and we were addressing the the Passover. It was one of the three great feasts that God required his people to come up to Jerusalem and celebrate. It was commemorating how he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And we saw there that all males were required to come up. But women, like Mary, were not. And Jesus, being 12 years old, is still just a boy. He would reach his majority status at age 13, so he's technically still a boy, and he's not required to come either. But this is a devout family, and so they all came up every year, including this one. And after the feast is ended, they returned to Nazareth, their hometown. Verse 39 above says that's where they were from. They were living there in Nazareth, about 80 miles to the north. And as was the custom, since they're all leaving from the same place, going to the same place, coming back at the same place, towns traveled together. So there are probably a good number of people in this caravan heading back to Nazareth, and Mary and Joseph assume that Jesus is just with friends or relatives. But it says, verse 43, that Jesus stayed behind. This is not an issue of negligent parents forgetting their child. Jesus made a decision to stay. And they go on, and they realize, probably come nightfall, that, hey, he's not here. And they're frantically looking around and decide to head back to Jerusalem the next day. And they frantically search Jerusalem until finally they find him wailing and frightened on a street corner. No. Verse 46, they find him perfectly content in the temple, wowing people. Get the picture here. Imagine what's going on there. As we've seen a number of times in the book of Deuteronomy, God said that when he brought his people into the land of Israel, he was going to give them a land and he was going to pick a particular place where he would cause his name to dwell, where he would be uniquely present. Now, now God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. But he said there's going to be a place where I will particularly dwell. And by this time, that is the temple in the city of Jerusalem. God's everywhere, but because he is uniquely here, In order to meet with God or to offer sacrifices to him or to worship him or to discuss with others who were of a like mind who he is and what his word says and what his character is like and what he requires of his people, you go to the temple to do that, a place where he is. And so on the temple grounds in all the various courtyards there, teachers of the law, and there were lots of them, teachers of the law Gathered and they sat down, and learners, those who wanted to glean the understanding of the ages, learners would gather around these teachers and sit down around them, and classes would form, informally, but certainly many classes kind of gathered. And the teaching style there was heavy on dialogue, not monologue, dialogue, questions and answers back and forth, parables and stories would be told, illustrations. This was not lecture with a blackboard. It was the type of give-and-take discussion that we could read about, for instance, in Luke chapters 20 and 21, where Jesus later in life is doing this very same thing, teaching in the temple courts. Crowds gathered around. He's interacting with them. They ask him questions and he, he answers and then turns it back on them and asks them a question and polishes it off with an illustration and gives them direct instruction. That sort of thing, back and forth, was regularly going on the temple courts. And so 12-year-old Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem and went up to the place where God dwells and sat down among the teachers and for three days joined in. Verse 47, listening to them and asking them questions. This is a boy in a man's world. They probably couldn't understand that he was 12 and not technically 13, but they certainly knew that he was quite young, probably decades younger than anybody else in the crowd. He's there listening. He's not teaching. We're not supposed to see this as Jesus as some sort of a ringer who sits down and and is asking questions so as to instruct. He's a learner. He's being taught. He's listening and questioning. That's the format of this type of thing. But as anybody who's ever taught anything can tell you, a teacher can readily identify bright students according to types of questions that they ask. A teacher is talking to a student about two plus two equals four. And the student is beginning to wonder out loud, okay, that's four, and if I did that twice, two times, I'd get four plus four, that would be eight. And if I did that times three, four plus four plus four is twelve. Is there a way to more quickly figure this out than just adding up all the twos? And the teacher begins, this, this girl is starting to think about multiplication already. Hmm, interesting. Any teacher can see that. Questions tell you a lot about what's going on or not going on in the student's mind. We're left to imagine the boy Jesus' questions as he listened to the teaching in the temple right after the Passover. He kind of wonder, what were they talking about right after the Passover, right after the Feast of Unleavened Bread? But they're dialoguing about this. We don't know exactly, but we do know, verse 47 again, that he rose quickly from a boy in the crowd to participant in the conversation to a cause of amazement. They were amazed as they watched him and listened to him. Which means they were not seeing 12-year-old type of wisdom in a 12-year-old boy. Not even 13- or 14-year-old type of understanding. That would not have been a cause of amazement. They were amazed at the breadth, the depth, the speed with which he caught things. Far beyond what was expected. He is not omniscient verse 40 above and 52 down right below he's not omniscient he has to grow in wisdom this is jesus fully man he has a real full genuine human nature and human nature is not omniscient he has to learn he is also fully god he's fully man and fully god two natures joined together not commingled It's not some sort of a hybrid, like an omniscient man. There is no such thing as an omniscient man. It's fully man and fully God. We'll come to that later. But he, as a man, he needs to learn. And so he asks questions. But his capacity to learn, unhindered by a sin nature, is vast. Probably very quick. His ability to connect the dots, unblinded, unbiased, unhindered by sin. His ability to to open the text and see God in it. And to understand what God's really about would have been very different. That's why he was amazing, astounding. I would imagine that more than a few gray-haired teachers sitting there in those three days wondered, Who is this kid? Can you imagine that? I've been teaching the law longer than his father's been alive. And he asks me a, a really good question, and when I turn it back at him, he answers it and moves on to the next step that I don't want to admit this, that I hadn't quite seen. "Hmm, who is that kid?" It was the three interesting days in the temple. And meanwhile, his parents are frantically racing around Judea and Jerusalem looking for him. And they find him in the temple, and they too are taken aback, but in a different way, different word, they are astonished. The feeling there being one of a reaction that parents have who've been fearing the worst for three days, and suddenly they find out that their lost kid isn't lost at all, not in any danger at all, but he's in a perfectly safe place, having a wonderful time in a totally unexpected manner. And they're astonished at that. In fact, a little frustrated. Mary questions him with language that is really an accusation. Son, why have you treated us so, fill in the blank, wrongly? It's not a question, it's an accusation. Behold, we've, we've been wronged. Your father and I have been looking frantically for you in great distress. To which the boy Jesus responds, his first words in the gospel. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? He answers Mary's question with a question of his own that likewise isn't remotely intended as a question. It's a statement. Notice the turn on the word father. Your father and I have been frantically looking for you. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? If you say, Mary, you say that 12-year-old boys belong with their father. I totally agree. Here I am. Mary, I know you haven't read Luke 1 and 2, but you lived it. You of all people should know whose father, who's who's my father, whose son I am. He's saying that and more. Did you not know, surely it is obvious that I must be in my father's house. Two things we need to clarify there. Jesus said that it was necessary. I must be. Original language is really just a single word. It's used repeatedly in the Bible to indicate divine necessity. From the perspective of God, this is something that has to be and has to be so thoroughly that it will be. Not something that it would be nice if it came to pass, but something that God, because of His nature and His power and His will, Makes happen it must be it is necessary well what's necessary that I be in my father's house, which is a statement rich in meaning at the first level, he's just speaking in the same shorthand that that Mary was giving him, you know about location. where are you, father, father? he's saying, I'm in my father's house, but literally he says, I must be in the things of my father's house. And all that that entails, it's a plural statement. The stuff of my father. It's necessary that I be here. Not geographically located right here, but here. In this place, in the center of what this is about. Look around, Mary. This is where I belong. I have a mission from my Father, and I am required to be in the midst of this. This the place where God and men meet. This the place where people come to worship Him and to learn about Him. That's what I must be about. I'm 12 years old and I know that about myself. Don't you? But verse 50, they did not understand what he was talking about. Stop arguing with me and get in the car. (laughs) That's essentially what they say. And Jesus, still a boy, still a minor. Fifth commandment says, honor your father and your mother. Jesus says, yes, ma'am, gets in the car, they go back to Nazareth. And life carries on, much like it was, back to things as they were before, with his parents in charge of him, him being raised. But the event did not disappear into some cloudy, distant memory. His mother treasured up all these things in her heart. The second time the Gospel of Luke says that in this introductory section. She did not get it. But she knew there was something there that she didn't get. And so she put it in there. To treasure it up in her heart does not mean to think, oh, that was special. It means to put it in there and mull it over. To continue to consider it and wonder about it. What was that? What was going on there? I think I missed something. She continued to think about it. And all the while, Jesus continued to grow in wisdom and in physically and in favor before God and men. That's the passage. A relatively brief story centered on a relatively brief statement by Jesus. I'm going to make two observations about it and connect it to Christmas and then come back and make a summary statement at the end about it. So let me begin with my first observation, which is related to the person of Jesus as it connects this text to Christmas. Christmas is about the divine Son of God joining himself to human nature. Christmas is about the divine Son of God joining himself to human nature. This passage is the conclusion of the birth narrative. In the very next passage, Jesus is suddenly an adult. This, this is the end of his youth. We're supposed to get from this the the summary of the whole Christmas story. And we start out by noticing that this boy, Jesus, is clearly a human being. The text is bracketed with two statements that say that he grew, he increased. He At one point is something and the next point is more than that. That's how humans are. They grow, they advance, they gain. He's a child who grows up in physical stature and, importantly, in wisdom. He does not have full command of all the facts. Not the facts about life or the facts about God. He is growing, born as a baby. He has a true, full, real, genuine human nature. He is fully man. And He is the divine Son of God. That's the astounding thing here. The birth of a baby is... For those parents, significant. For everybody else, nearly irrelevant. The astounding thing is that he is the divine son of God in human nature. That's the point of Christmas. And it's coming up in this text as well throughout all of Luke's gospel. It's what's behind, as I said, it's what's behind that astounding understanding that you see there in the temple. As the the divine son of God, he has a divine God nature. No sin nature. So his understanding and his learning is not limited or or in any way impinged upon by sin. So it shows up there. There's evidence of his divine nature in the learning. But the real emphasis falls on what Jesus says in verse 49. Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? To work on that, my Father. What's Jesus saying when he says, my Father? Not Joseph. My Father. There's a couple avenues to explore that. First of all, the very phrase itself, my father, was very unique in Judaism. You read in the Gospel of John, I don't know if they would have held a boy to this standard, but in the Gospel of John, when an adult calls Yahweh my father, they accuse him of blasphemy. They They go to kill Jesus because he called him my father. The text says, making himself equal with God. This phrase, my father is loaded. But Jesus is here in this place in Luke. My father should cause us to think back to a text we already heard read this morning, actually, in the Christmas story, Luke chapter one. The angel appears to to Mary and says, you're going to have a son. How can this be since I'm a virgin? The power of the most high will overshadow you. This is no physical union. This is not God the Father and Mary actually having a physical union. This is a supernatural, spiritual work. The power of God will overshadow you and make you to conceive. And so the Holy One to be born, the holy meaning not morally pure, but unique, set apart, distinct, It's never happened once before, never happened ever again, the unique Holy One will be called the Son of God. This one born of the Virgin Mary is the Son of God, Luke 1. What does that title mean? See, it developed in Luke 4. Jesus, as an adult now, goes into the desert to be tempted. And he's there 40 days, hungry because he's a real human being. And Satan comes to him and says, If you are the Son of God, which is not a question... The challenge is if I were to say, if you're a man, then act like one. I'm not uncertain as to whether or not you were a man. That's a challenge. If you are a man, act like one. Satan says, if you are the Son of God, then act like one. Turn these rocks into bread. I know who you are. I know what it means to be the Son of God. You have power over matter. You can make stone into bread. So do it if you are. Since you are. To be the Son of God, Jesus, is to have power over matter. Or later in the same chapter, Jesus shows His authority over demons. He casts many of them out of sick people, and as the demons submit to His power, they leave these people crying out, protesting against Jesus. We know who you are. You are the Son of God. And He silences them and will not permit them to speak. To be the Son of God is to not have only power over matter, it is to have power over demons from the pit of hell. Power over the spiritual realm. Jesus is the Son of God with authoritative power over demons, with power over Satan, with power over the physical world, able to change stones to bread, able to stop raging storms with a word able to heal blindness, able to raise the dead back to life with a simple command that it be so. Repeatedly, He does that. He forgives people sin and proves that He can do so by telling lame men to walk. This is a real, live human being who has the power of the Divine One in Him. God in flesh. Jesus is the Son of God, which is to say that Jesus is God the Son. The One who spoke all of the universe into existence has come He's come in a seven pound, three ounce bundle of flesh that can't even feed itself. Though he can make rocks into bread. Who can't defend himself though he can raise the dead. This is the one, this is what is astounding about Christmas. The omnipotent one has joined himself to meek vulnerability. The omnipresent one has joined Himself to a body in space and in time with flesh and blood that eats, will one day bleed and die. The omniscient One has joined Himself to a mind that must grow in knowledge. God has taken on flesh. Incarnation. Christmas is about the divine Son of God joining himself to human nature. Why? Why on earth would he do that? We'll come to that. It's going to be the second observation. We need to stop here for a moment because I need to ask you, are you a verse 48 type of person? There is something incredibly significant happening at Christmas. And it has nothing to do with cute babies and wonderful family pictures and mangers and the precious hush. We made all that up. Read the Bible. What it's about is God becoming flesh for a reason. And we'll get to that. But before we go there, we have to stop. Are you a verse 48 person? In other words, are you prone to overlook the true identity of Jesus. To miss the point of Christmas. Mary and Joseph are frantic, feeling wrong by Jesus. They're running around. They find Him. Your Father and I have been looking all over for you. And they miss the point, And they should have known better. And Jesus tells them that. But what about you? All of us, from time to time, forget or overlook, or reject the truth about Jesus. What about you? At Christmas time, there are always a number of people who, for one reason or other, decide to go to church, though it's not their usual habit. Some, perhaps, are, are missing God. God. The last year or so, they've missed God and, and they're thinking now is the time and a church is a good place to, to seek him again to try to reconnect with him. And, and it is a good place if it's a good church. Others are family members traveling in from out of town and they decide to, to go to wherever their family usually goes. Some are drawn by Christmas hymns and decorations. I don't know what's brought you here. But whether you come here every week or if this is your first time here, you are not here by accident. The sovereign God has ordained it such that you would be sitting right here, right now. And perhaps that is so that you will not miss the point of Christmas. God has become man. Man. which is not like any other religion in the world. If I were to say God has become man, and that were an opinion or a religious philosophy, then it can be weighed and and evaluated and judged. Countless other religions in the world, all of the other religions in the world, are built upon essentially... Some man going off into the woods somewhere or off into a cave somewhere or up onto a mountaintop somewhere and allegedly receiving some word from the divine and coming back out of the woods or out of the cave or down from the mountain and teaching it to people. And then you have to sit there and judge whether or not you believe that guy. That's totally different than what I'm talking about. It's totally different than Christianity. Claims made centuries before, prophecies, they are in the same category of the guy who went up on the mountain or into the woods and said, this is the truth. They're in the same category, and you can judge those prophecies, whether or not you want to believe them or not, until they come to pass in time and space. The virgin was with child, and she gave birth to a son in the city of Bethlehem. Fact. Just like it had been foretold centuries upon centuries before. Naming even the town. And that child grew up and healed untold multitudes of congenital defects by the power of his voice. Fact. He walked on water. He calmed storms. He commanded dead people to get up and be alive again on His own authority, repeatedly, and they did. Fact. And He said... I am God in flesh, and I will prove that to you by dying on a cross and rising again from the dead three days later. God will verify this claim by bringing me back to life. And it happened historically, demonstrably, exactly like He said it would. The cross happened, the tomb was empty. Though it had been guarded, it was still empty. That is a fact. This is completely different than a realm of, here's a philosophy of life that you should follow and obey, and if you do these certain things here, then you'll be good. This is rooted in history. Fact. trying to avoid this is like trying to avoid gravity you can avoid it for a little while but the fact of gravity forces everything to be reconciled to it eventually the appropriate response then at christmas time is not to overlook this or to reject it but to ask why This happened in history. Why? It leads to the second observation. The divine Son of God has come to reconnect people to God. The first observation is about what we see about His person, and then this gets to His purpose. Christmas has a purpose, and it is not to make us feel warm and fuzzy. And it is certainly not to put us all in debt. God the Son came to earth and took on a body To reconnect people to God. To reclaim God's world for him. To restore that which was broken, marred, ruined. That's what Jesus is getting at in verse 49 when he says, I must be in my Father's house. It is of divine necessity. I have come on a mission to be about this, to be about the presence of God, the place where people can meet with him, to teach about that and then to make it actually possible. I have to be on that mission. That's why I came. He obviously is not just speaking about the physical location because he immediately leaves the temple and then in his adult life he spends actually very little time in it. He's speaking about the purpose of that house. And then Jesus, in whom God dwells, wherever Jesus walks, He carries the temple around with Him. He carries the presence of God with Him. It becomes mobile. And so He seeks people out. See this immediately after He comes back from the desert temptation. And what does He do? He starts wandering around teaching people. Going into synagogues and villages and sitting on mountaintops and going everywhere where people are to teach them, to bring the presence of God to them, to explain, this is what I'm about. This is where the presence of God is. This is how you can be reconnected to Him. That's why I've come. But we need to be very careful in that He is not explaining. He has not said... I am God, come in flesh, that gives me authority to then tell you the rules that you should follow. He does very clearly talk about the rules we're supposed to follow. But in a condemning way. Jesus is condemning? Absolutely Jesus is condemning. It's Jesus who said, You have heard it said, you shall not kill. I tell you, you're the authority there, I tell you that if you get angry in your heart or ridicule or scorn somebody, you have earned for yourself the fire of hell. That's every one of us. That's condemning. That's Jesus talking about what we are to do, leveling a charge against every single one of us. It was Jesus who said, You have heard it said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. I tell you, on his own authority, I tell you, every one of you who lusts after a woman in his mind, in his heart, is guilty of it. That Jesus is talking about what we're supposed to do, leveling a charge, and condemning every male in the room. Half the females too. We could go on. He does clearly talk about and teach about and explain, surely like the teachers in the temple courts did, because they're opening up the same law. He opens it up. He levels the charge and says, You're guilty. How is that reconnecting people to God? That's severing people from God. Or actually clarifying that we are severed from God already. Well, in that... Similarly to how, if a doctor is talking to you about your medical condition, if he or she wants to heal you, he first of all has to make clear that you're sick. So part of the healing work is the revealing work. You're guilty. You've got a tumor. It's actually in there. You can't see it, but it's growing. It'll kill you. You stand condemned. But there's more. If you get that part, there's more. Because he doesn't come just teaching. He comes to actually affect the reconnect. That's really the central purpose behind him becoming God-man. man He becomes God-man, not just for the sake of teaching us. God did that perfectly well from Mount Sinai, out of a cloud. He becomes God-man so as to effect the bridging of these two worlds. Fallen humanity, holy God. He is the place where man and God can meet. He accomplishes that at the cross. Christmas, from the very start, has an eye on Easter. The two, the two have to go together. You separate them, then neither one of them happens. They come together. And so he teaches, in the book of Luke, I have come, not to call the righteous, actually aren't any righteous, he clarifies that, he's speaking Metaphorically there, not, not facetiously, not people who think they're righteous. I have come to call sinners to repentance. And let me explain, everybody's a sinner. And I will call you to repentance. Repentance, what does that mean? Turning from pursuing your own way to make yourself right to turning to me to make you right on the cross. Every one of us as lawbreakers has earned for ourselves the wrath of God. And Jesus, human being, God, goes to the cross to take on himself the wrath of God for all of those who listen to his teaching and believe him. So don't miss it. Because there is a great hope there. This is good news. Gospel. Not a a plan of steps to be followed. It is a message to be believed. That Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient to pay for your sin before God if you trust Him. That is a message to be believed. So believe. Believe. Repent from not believing that. Turn, that's what repentance means, turn to believing that. Trust Him and He will save you. That is good news. That's the core of His message. That's what the temple is about. Reconciling, connecting God to people. Jesus brings that to every single one of you. This morning. You're not here by an accident. You've heard that. Respond. Your response might be, though, a little bit like Mary's, the very end, treasuring it in her heart. You might understand what I'm saying perfectly clearly, and you might need to respond by trusting Christ right now. Or you might not quite get it all perfectly clearly, but you know there's something there to get. And you want to think about it. That's good, too. If you want to think, think. But don't play a mind game with yourself saying that you're going to think about it sometime down the road when you get to it. That's a decision not to think about it. If you want to think, great, think i offer you one resource to help you with that. A book called The Case for Christmas. Actually, this is an abridgment of a larger book called The Case for Christmas. Journalist Lee Strobel investigates the identity of the child in the manger. Free copies back in the table as you go out. If you want to pick one up, take it, read it, think it through. But don't miss it. Everything hinges on it. You come to Him, you come to believe, you find He actually has accomplished the reconnecting of me to God. And most of us, I I think most of us here, sit in that place right now. And this should cause you to marvel. The reconnecting that needed to happen, it needed to happen before Christ came. God initiated an action to bring that to pass. That is an awesome God. God acted to save. God acted to do what needed to be done. That is an awesome God. And if you know that reconnection with Him, your heart should stir and should warm at that. There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ, but you stand in his grace and he deals with you always and only in grace. That is a marvelous truth. That should stir you and warm you. And it should also speak something to you that I've needed to hear this week in particular. Because it has seemed to me that church, school and world conspire to ruin Christmas. At least over this last week it seemed like that to me, as I've been running here and there and here and there and here and there and haven't had a chance to stop and and think about it and and rest. I thought, what a lousy environment for actually celebrating Christmas. And then it, it occurred to me after somebody talked to me that this is actually the perfect environment to celebrate Christmas. Because this is essentially what Christmas is about. God acting to fix messed up lives and worlds. I think I want to get everything all cleaned up and all my ducks in a row and everything perfect so then I can celebrate Christmas. The midst of the mess is the place to celebrate Christmas. To remember, this is what he is about. Now, in my case, it was not all connected to sin issues. It was some scheduling issues. But then I mixed some sin into it. And a lot of us suffer from our own sin or from other people's sin. And you're in the midst of the mess right now. And if you're tempted to think, I wish I could clear all this away so I could celebrate Christmas, actually realize because of that you can celebrate Christmas. He's God in the midst of that. He's at work in it, all things, under His sovereign control. And He's working all things for the good of His people. He's teaching you. He's teaching you about what it means to be reconnected to Him. To be reconnected to Him is not just purely a a one-time issue that affects what happens to you when you die. It happens once, you you come to faith in Him or join to Him, but then its effect is throughout life, day by day, in the midst of all the muck. And by bringing muck into your life, He's trying to teach you that. So trust Him. Surrender to Him. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Are you weary and heavy laden? Come i give you rest. God has done something marvelous at Christmas so that we can walk reconnected to him. That's my summary for this morning. God has done something marvelous at Christmas so that we can walk reconnected to him. Trust him and walk with him and worship him. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes here, that we would not miss what you have had to say to us this morning. We are in need of your grace to open our eyes and speak to us. We're coming from all different places this morning. And, Father, I pray that you would seal on our hearts your truth. That you would bring conviction where it's needed. That you would bring encouragement where it's needed. That you would bring hope where that's needed. Speak to us in ways that we understand so that life is changed. And you are honored by it. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.